Well, hey, good morning, church. Thank you guys for uh, tuning in and watching this morning. Do me a favor, grab your Bibles and turn to Luke 4. We have a lot of scripture to get through this morning. We are not going to be wasting this opportunity to open God's word and see what it would have for us uh, this morning. So we're going to be starting in Luke 4, working our way through 4, 5, and into Luke chapter 6. While you're turning there, let me just say this. Um, Mission statements are important. Mission statements define what we're looking to accomplish, why we exist. And if you were to look at some of the mission statements of some of um, our country's um, most successful companies, many of them are very impressive. They say exactly what they set out to do. Um, Google has this as their mission statement. They say to organize the world's information and make it universally accessible and useful. I, if that's their mission statement, I think they've done a pretty good job of staying on mission, achieving that. I like Coca-Cola's mission statement. It's simple. It's just four words to refresh the world. I like it pretty easy. You know what they're after. Nike says this, their goal is to bring inspiration and innovation to every athlete in the world. That's their mission statement. And then there's this asterisk next to their mission statement. And the asterisk says this, if you have a body, you're an athlete. So their goal is to appeal to athletes, but then they're broadening pretty loosely, I would say, who their audience is, saying if, if you're alive, if you have a body, then you're an athlete. Last week, as I taught at Grand Haven, and we were looking at our 10-year celebration and kind of reflecting on what God has done, I went back and revisited our mission statement as a church. And our mission statement when we started Harvest was simply this. Our, our, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples through gospel-centered worship, through gospel-centered teaching, through gospel-centered community, and through gospel-centered multiplication. We revised or updated that mission statement at the beginning of this year, trying to make it simpler to remember. It's simply this, lift up, hold high, love well. And, and, and I would encourage you, judge our church, judge the past 10 years, judge the next 10 years by our mission statement. We have stated what we want to be, what we want to accomplish as a church, and it's our mission statement that becomes the judge of whether or not we've accomplished what we set out to do. And just so you know, writing a mission statement is way easier than living out a mission statement. That first mission statement that we had as a church, quite honestly, we didn't even write it. We, we stole that from a church that we admired down in um, Texas. It was the mission statement of Village Church, a church pastored there by Matt Chandler. And, and in the early years as a, as a pastor, as a new pastor here at Harvest, I really struggled to stay on mission. It was not unusual for Cal or for Chris to kind of come up to me and say, hey, hey, uh, you're drifting off mission, Dave, and uh, back to mission. We're, we're, we're getting things out of focus in those early days, it was interesting. One of the things that I was invited to, it was a good thing, as pastors in our community was we would get together at least once a month at one of the various churches and we, we would just pray for each other's churches and our ministries. What, what a great thing, right? And, and as I got involved with that, then I was asked to be in um, small groups with several of the other pastors and the small groups would take place on Tuesday afternoons every other week. So every other week for several hours, I would give an afternoon to meeting with these other pastors. And then you take on top of that, our church was part of an organization called Harvest Bible Fellowship, which is a group of like-minded churches. And that um, uh, group came with its own engagements, with its own responsibilities, its meetings, and its obligations. All good things. But, 
the reality was all of a sudden we looked and much of my time was no longer being spent making disciples inside the walls of our church. It was spent hanging out with pastors outside of our ministry. And the objective of our ministry was always to make disciples. It was never to be popular or to pour into the lives of other shepherds, other pastors. And I tell you that for this reason. The things that knock you off mission are usually not bad things. They can be good things that take the place of the most important thing. Mission statements are easy. Living them out is hard. And as we turn to Luke 4, the reason I want to start here is Jesus gives us the mission statement for his ministry. We looked at this a couple weeks ago. Jesus is in his hometown in Nazareth. He stands up in the synagogue and he reads from Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah. And here's what he says. Follow along with me, Luke 4, verse 16. Says Jesus came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me, here's his mission statement, to proclaim good news to the poor, to He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. His mission statement, what he set out to do, proclaim liberty to captives, give sight to the blind, set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus is explaining that this gospel is not just for Jewish people which is a great thing unless your identity and your pride is in your Jewishness. And he's also explaining that this is not for people that are righteous on their own, that have it all put together. He's coming to gather broken people. He's coming to heal. He's coming to free the oppressed, which is a great thing if you realize that you're lost. See, Jesus came, and I spoke on this a couple weeks ago. Jesus came not to be a superhero, but a savior. He doesn't come to rescue the good people and punish the bad. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, to heal the broken. That's his mission statement. And that's really good news unless you think you're one of the good guys. So the question I have this morning, the thing that I want us to explore is this, it's simply this, as Jesus begins his ministry, as we see him move on from making his mission statement to living out his mission statement, will he stay on target? Will he get distracted? Will he get interrupted? Will he have mission drift? Let's look. The big idea this morning is simply this, our mission must define our ministry. Our mission must define our ministry. Look in chapter 4 of Luke, verse 31. It says that Jesus went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished uh, at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And then in verse 33, and in the synagogue, there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon. Seems a little redundant, doesn't it? Unclean demon, like, well, there's the clean demons and there's the unclean demons. I don't think that was the case. Luke is making an emphasis on this word unclean. It's going to come up a lot over the course of the next couple chapters. It says, this man cried out with a loud voice, verse 34, how, what have you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him 
having done to him no harm. You see the same thing down in verse 41. The demons also came out of many saying, you are the son of God, but he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. Why does Jesus rebuke the demons and not allow them to proclaim that he is the son of God? Because that job, that responsibility, that mission isn't given to those who won't submit and surrender their lives to Jesus' authority. That's given to us, the church, who are willing to surrender ourselves to our Savior. The point I want to make here is there's always spiritual oppression when you choose to follow Jesus. Jesus stays on mission despite, here's the first point, opposition. Jesus stays on mission despite opposition. It, it shouldn't surprise you that when Jesus begins his ministry, there's demonic oppression surrounding him. Whenever you get into the game, whenever you have a testimony for Jesus Christ, you're always going to be met with oppression. As long as you're sitting on the, bre- on the bench, you probably won't get tackled. But the minute you step on the field, the beginning, the minute that you begin to take yardage for the cause of Christ, you're going to get hit. You're going to try to be tackled. And Jesus is surrounded by this demonic oppression. His ministry starts by being tempted in the wilderness by Satan. Here we see him early in his ministry having to deal with the demon oppressed. This man is considered unclean. Luke stresses that point because you need to understand the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they would have looked at this man and he would not have been somebody that they would have spent time on, that they would have wasted their time on. He was outside of the congregation. He was outside of the community of God. He was demon-possessed. He wasn't a man to be ministered to. He was a man to be avoided. And yet Jesus is ministering to this man. He is freeing him of his demons. Have we read anything lately where Jesus said that he was coming to give liberty to those who were oppressed? Jesus is doing what he said he would do. Here's the second thing. Jesus stays on mission despite applause. Look at verse 42, Luke 6, verse 42, it says, And when it was day, he departed and went to a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. just want to focus on that last phrase. If, if the people had their choice, they wouldn't have allowed, have allowed Jesus to leave. They would have said, Jesus, stay with us. Now, now you got to understand, in Jesus' day, I, I got to assume he was probably the best preacher in all of Galilee. Wouldn't you agree? And you add to that the fact that not only was he the greatest preacher in Galilee, but because he was the son of God, he had the ability to do supernatural miracles and heal people. I'm thinking he was pretty popular. And Jesus is under this tug throughout his ministry. Be king now. Be popular now. All the way from the beginning of his ministry in the wilderness, that's what Satan tempts Jesus with. You can be king right now. His Jesus at the end of his ministry enters Jerusalem. The people cry out, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they want to see him become the Messiah that will stay, that will lead, that will conquer. Problem is that's not Jesus' ministry. Look at verse 43. Jesus responds, but I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. See, Jesus stays on purpose. He stays on mission. Jesus wasn't here to be king. The mission of his first visitation, he was 
on mission to be slaughtered. How, how hard would it have been if you were Jesus, knowing where your ministry would lead, knowing how his story would end, to ignore the applause of the people, ignore them begging you to stay. But he presses on, presses on to the cross. It's profound. Jesus is doing exactly what he said he would do. So Jesus stays on mission despite opposition, despite applause. It's a longer point. It's going to be in chapter 5. He stays on mission despite expectations. I'm going to move quickly through a lot of verses here. Hang with me. Keep up. Luke 5 verse 1, it says, On one occasion the crowds were pressing in on him to hear the word of God, and he was by this lake, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. And getting into one of the boats which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from land and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished teaching, I don't know if it was as a thank you to the fishermen, but, but he tells them, hey, why don't you go out and fish, put your nets out again. And Simon is like, whatever, Jesus, I don't think this is going to work, but if you command it, we'll do it. And the disciples quickly found their nets full to the point of breaking. And it says, when Peter saw it, verse eight, he fell down at Jesus's knees saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Peter says, hey, hey, Jesus, I'm unclean. You need to depart. I'm not who the gospel's intended for. Listen to what Jesus says. Verse 10, and Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From, from now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Just so you understand what's happening here, Jesus is calling some of his first disciples. And, and in Jesus' day, what would happen is through the Jewish education system, the, the kids would be trained in Old Testament. And what would happen is those that were the best students, the brightest students, they would continue to advance in their education. But, but the ones who weren't so smart would be kind of weaned out of the process and they would be sent back home to their families and to their fathers to learn a trade. So as Jesus is calling his disciples and the fact that they're fishermen lets you know that they weren't uh, the sharpest knives in the drawer. They weren't at the top of the class. In essence, Jesus isn't sorting through the young men of Israel and saying, okay, who's the best, who's the brightest? He's literally going to the set of the deadliest catch and grabbing those guys and being like, hey, you come follow me. Is Jesus on mission? Is he staying on point? Yes, he is. Look at verse 12. We see that Jesus heals a leper here. It says this, verse 12, and while he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. Other translations say covered with leprosy. And, and it's interesting, Luke is writing, Luke is a doctor. He, he kind of gives a diagnosis there. He says that he is full of leprosy. So the question would be, hey, is this leprosy stage one or stage four? Uh, stage four, he's covered. You need to understand what this meant for this man as he approaches Jesus. Leviticus, the Old Testament law, would say this of those who suffered with leprosy. Leviticus 13.45 says the leprous person who has the disease, shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean, and he shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. 
So, so leprosy was, was considered a contagious disease. Uh, and if you had leprosy, you were quarantined. There was no vaccine. It was ghastly. Josephus, the Jewish historian, said that lepers were treated in the day of Jesus as if they were in fact dead men, walking dead, zombies. That was the plight of the leper. The only good news if you had a leper, if you look at the Old Testament law, is you only had to cover your upper lip, which meant you didn't have to wear your mask over your nose. Bad news is you probably didn't have a nose. So dark humor. Let me get back on mission. Look, look at what it says in verse 12. It says, and when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. There was a debate among scholars in Jesus' day. What caused a man to be sick? What caused an, a deformity in a person? And the debate was, was it that man's sin or the sin of his parents? But regardless of which way you landed in that debate, the conclusion was this, that people who had leprosy, people who had disease, people who had physical infirmities, they were grouped into a group of people called sinners. So here's Jesus engaging with sinners. These are people that would have been in, basically by the religious elite, they would have been unclean. They would have been unreachable. And this is who Christ is going to. This is who he's healing. And I want you to continually see how Jesus spends all of his time with people that the religious elite wouldn't target, wouldn't go after, quite frankly, didn't even care about. So how's Jesus doing so far? Is he staying on mission? Is he doing what he said that he was going to do? What gives him the strength? What gives him the power to stay on mission? Look at verse 16. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. We'll talk more on that in a minute. Look at verse 17. Jesus now heals a paralytic. It says this in verse 17. And in one of those days as he was teaching, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were standing there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. So now the religious leaders are paying attention to Jesus. They're, they're following him. They're in the crowd. And this story goes on to say that this man, this paralytic, had a, some friends who brought this paralyzed man to Jesus. He couldn't get there on his own, but when they arrived where Jesus was, it was too crowded, so they got up on the roof. They lowered him through the roof. And Jesus responds to this in verse 20. It says, and when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven. Again, unclean people were considered sinners, and Jesus has just said, man, your sins are forgiven you. Historically, to have your sins forgiven, you would have to offer a sacrifice. This man's done nothing but be carried by his friends into the presence of Jesus, and Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. There's, there's starting to be a shift. Something's different about Jesus' ministry. Verse 21, the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this that speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And then in verse 22, it says, Jesus perceived their thoughts and he answered them saying, why do you question in your hearts? What's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you or to say rise and walk? Verse 24, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he arose before them and picked up the bed that he'd been lying on and went home glorifying God. 
Verse 26, and amazement seized them all and they glorified God and were filled with awe saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Jesus doing exactly what he said he would do. Verse 27, Jesus calls Levi the tax collector, says he saw him sitting in his tax booth and says, come and follow me. Verse 28, they la- or Levi leaves, follows Jesus. And in verse 29, they throw a great feast at Levi's house and there's a large company of tax collectors and others gathered there. And in verse 30, the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at Jesus' disciples saying, why does, your, why does Jesus eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? That's a great question. I, I don't know how to describe to you um, the position that the tax collector held in Jesus' day. In essence, what's going on is Rome has an army and that army controls a landmass all the way from England to India. And in that day, the only way that you could continue to govern, continue to rule a land that big is you had to basically have a huge army made up of Roman soldiers and mercenaries who were paid. And to pay them, you had to tax the people that lived in the lands that you were oppressing. And what Levi had done is he had bought the right from Rome to tax his own countrymen so that they could afford an army that would oppress his kingsmen. I mean, this is betrayal. It's just unbelievable. And Jesus comes to Levi and says, hey, why don't you come hang out with me? Follow me. And the point is this, if God can forgive a tax collector, he can forgive anyone. Jesus answers the scribes and the Pharisees in verse 31, he actually restates his mission. He said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So Jesus stays on mission despite opposition, applause, expectations. Here's the fourth one, Luke 6, hatred. Luke 6, verse 1, on the Sabbath, While he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them with their hands. So interesting, Deuteronomy 23, you can go read it at some other point, don't do it now. But Jesus, or the the Old Testament law had given a, a gracious provision that if you were poor, if you were hungry, if you didn't have enough to eat, it was okay as you walked or were you on a journey, you could go into the grain fields, um, pick some grain for yourself and eat it. Now, you weren't allowed to drive a combine into the field and plow it and harvest it, but if you were hungry, there was provision made for those who were hungry and poor to be able to have enough for their personal consumption. The rub here is that there was also in the law the fourth commandment which prohibited work on the Sabbath. So the scribes or the Pharisees come and they say, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? They approach Jesus and say, why are your disciples picking grain on the Sabbath? Over the centuries, the the Jewish leaders had had basically written a commentary or um, a a set of um, kind of their ideas on what defined work. It's called the Mishnah. And they'd identified 35 or 39 different cat clarifications or categories for work. Each one of those that could be subdivided. And Jesus' disciples were technically in violation of four of the rules that the Pharisees had put in place that defined work. They were reaping, they were threshing, they were winnowing, and they were preparing food. And, and here's a question that I would have for you. Has, has this don't work on the Sabbath came into conflict with uh, the poor allowed to pick grain, I'd ask a simple question. 
How many days of the week are the hungry hungry? I don't think hunger takes a Sabbath. But they were trying to figure out how to make these two commands work together. Jesus answers in verse 3 and he said, Have you not read that Dave, what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? How they entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with them? So I don't have a lot of time to develop this, but if I were to take you back to Leviticus 24, each week there were 12 loaves of unleavened bread that were put before the presence of the God in the temple or in the tabernacle. And at the end of a week, new bread was placed in front of the presence of the Lord and the old bread was removed and it was given to the priests to eat. But David was in the process of fleeing from Saul and he approached the priest. He said, do you have anything to eat? My guys are starving. And the priest said, the only thing that we have is the bread of the presence, the bread that had been in the presence of the Lord that was only lawful for the priest to eat. And David begged the priest for bread and the priest allowed David and his men to take the bread. And what we see here is a principle that human need must, be, must not be subjected to cold legalism, that God desires mercy, not sacrifice. And we don't have to guess on that. In the book of Matthew chapter 12, Matthew's recording a, the same story about when Jesus' disciples were approached by the Pharisees about picking grain on the Sabbath. And he says this to the Pharisees, if you had known what this means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Religion or righteous observance that does not look out for the plight of the needy is unacceptable. And what Jesus is doing here, he's getting to the heart of the commands of the Old Testament law. And in verse 5, he says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. I, I wish I had time to develop this. Hebrews 4 identifies Jesus as our Sabbath. What I'd say just quickly is this. Being a follower of Jesus is not always about doing. Sometimes it's just about being it's taking a rest. It's, it's breaking from the normal routine. The Sabbath is given to us to get us off the treadmill of life and to, to remind us that our relationship with Jesus is not based off what we do. It's about who we know. Verse 6. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath. Get, get this next phrase. So that they might find a reason to accuse him. So, so there's a man who has a withered hand. He's physically deformed. And the Pharisees are there, not in hopes of seeing this man get relief to be healed. They're there so that they might have an opportunity to accuse Jesus. You've, you've just seen their hearts revealed. The law has become all they know. It's become their identity. Verse 8, Jesus knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And the man rose and stood next to Jesus. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around it, them all, he said to them, stretch out your hand. And the man did so, and his hand was restored. At the heart here, when faced with how to interpret scripture and what your next sh uh, move should be, we're being instructed here to fault towards compassion. The, the commands of God were not given to oppress men, but to set men free. And the Pharisees and the scribes, they were turning the Sabbath law 
into chains. Seriously? You can't feed yourself if you're hungry on the Sabbath. A man can't be healed. You've got to be kidding me. Jesus says that's not the heart of the law. And I would argue in 2020, we've had to do some of those same kind of considerations. Hebrews 10, 25 says, Don't neglect meeting together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Today I'm preaching to an empty room. You're watching probably from your homes. Why did we make that decision? Well, the command of Hebrews 10.25, the motive behind the command is clear. It's given to us in the previous verse. Hebrews 10.24 says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. So, so I'm preaching to an empty room. You're at home. The why is because we're choosing in this season compassion. Our, ministry, our mission must define our ministry. Our mission at harvest. Lift up, hold high, love well. Verse 11. But they, the, the Pharisees, were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. And in those days he went out to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. Just point something out simply. See what it says in verse 12. That's the third time in two chapters we see Jesus retreating from his disciples, from the crowds that followed him, to get alone, to get to a desolate place, and to pray. Jesus isn't always doing. He's also being. He's getting back into the presence of the Lord. He did not neglect for himself his Sabbath rest. So the question Will Jesus stay on mission? Will, will he get distracted? Will he sell out? Will he really do what he said that he's going to do? Will he really seek after broken, lost, desperate people? I think he's proven himself. And because Jesus has proven himself, just two things. Therefore, here's number one, Jesus can be trusted. See, if Jesus stated his mission but then didn't do what he said he was going to do, then we wouldn't have to trust him. But what we see Jesus do is clearly state what his mission is. He does exactly what he said he was going to do. He is exactly who he said that he would be. And because of that, we know that Jesus can be trusted. There's no hypocrisy in Jesus. There's no difference between what he says and what he does. And here's the second thing. Therefore, not only can Jesus be trusted, we can follow with confidence. And, and, and here's the good news this morning. The mission that Jesus set out to accomplish, he is still doing today. Jesus is still in the business of seeking out and saving the oppressed, the brokenhearted, the lost, the broken. Those of us who don't have it all together, those of us who still struggle, those of us who struggle with anxiety in this season as our world once again seems to close in. I think, I think sometimes, and, and this was my, my goal, my mission for this message, I just wanted you to see Jesus. I just wanted you to see him for who he is, doing the very things that he said that he would do. And sometimes I think we just need to take a step back and be reminded of the fact that Jesus would go to a tax collector. He'd go to a man like Levi and he would say, hey, come follow me. Come hang out with me. I know your past. I know who you are. 
come follow. Sometimes maybe we just need to look over the list of who Jesus' disciples are. Remember Peter, always, always combative, always questioning, sometimes fearful. And yet Jesus loves them, not because of who they are or what they've accomplished, but because of what he's accomplished and who he is. I think sometimes we just need to get over ourselves, right? So, so, so maybe we haven't made all the right decisions. Maybe we're a little broken. Maybe we're struggling in this season. Welcome to life in a fallen world. It's what makes the cross of Jesus, the gospel, so great. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for um, your word. And Father, we lift high the name of Jesus because he is who he said that he is. He did what he said he would do. And he continues to save. He continues to transform. And for that reason, we can respond with confidence that you will not cast us away from your presence, that you will forgive our sin. Father, teach us to trust you. Teach us to follow you. Teach us to be like you. It's in Jesus' name we pray.